Amen. You may be seated. This morning we return to our series on the book of Acts. So I invite you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word as we turn together to Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 41. Acts 2, 14 through 41. So, so far in our study of the book of Acts, we've really kind of been looking at the introduction coming into the book. We've seen so far that this book was written by the physician Luke. But he was he wrote it in the inspiration and guidance by the Holy Spirit. And he was inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit to write this narrative of the birth of the early church and the early days of the church. So it has that very very much that flow and that purpose to it. As we noted, it's interesting that we note that the beginning of the church doesn't begin at Pentecost. The beginning of the church begins with Jesus ascending into heaven. Because as we will talk about here in a few moments, Jesus ascended into heaven so he could send forth the Spirit in order for the church to be birthed. So the, the story of the church begins with the ascension. And after the ascension, the apostles gather together so they can choose a replacement for Judas, the evil one who did the, the evil task of betraying Jesus. And so they chose Matthias to replace Judas. And then quickly following that, we come to Pentecost, where the 120 are, are gathered in the upper room, and, and God, through his spirit, now comes down to his people signified through the wind and the fire that his presence is now with them. That just because Jesus ascended, they are no longer by themselves. They now have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, now with them, signified by the the sound of the wind and by the flames of fire coming down upon them. But they are people who have a purpose. And that purpose is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only to believe in, but to share And so part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit was to enable them to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with others in tongues and languages that that were foreign to them. They did not know, but they were able to go out. And it's interesting that if we think of it this way, the first act of the church wasn't a committee meeting. It wasn't a Bible study. It was evangelism. One of the very first things the church did was to go out and tell others about Jesus Christ. And so that brings us to our passage this morning, where we find it is still Pentecost. The 120 are still in the temple courtyard sharing the gospel. And we find that Peter stands up to deliver the first sermon of the first church of Jerusalem. And so let me pray for our time together as we look at this passage. So pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds this morning. So with our ears, we will hear. With our minds, we will understand. With our hearts, that we will believe. That we will receive and rest upon Jesus as he's offered to us in this part of your holy word. We ask this this in the name of the one who is full of grace and truth, the one whom this whole word is about, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our passage is Acts 2, 14 through 41. We will stay, since it's a lengthy passage, you can stay seated. But I encourage you to read along with me as I read it now for us. 
But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn, sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw, and he spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and those and there were added that day about three thousand souls. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. So as I look around the sanctuary this morning, I see a lot of people, 
who have been in and around the church for a long time. Maybe your testimony is you were born and raised in this church, baptized right down here. Or you were born and raised in another church and, and God called you here. Or maybe you came to this church later on or you came to another church later on. But as I look around, I see veterans of the church. You are familiar with the church. You're familiar with the, the seven of the church. You're familiar with the, with the flow of the church. And in this, you have heard a lot of sermons over your life. I don't know how many you remember. But I, I know a lot of you, if not all of you, here this morning and joining us online, have heard a lot of sermons over the course of your life. So I want you to think about this this morning. I want you to take a moment just to think through, I want you to think through this question, or think through this. What is your criteria for what makes a good sermon? Out of all the sermons you've heard over the course of your life, and those sermons you walked away from and you said, man, that was a good sermon. And I'm going to do my best to, to try to at least remember that, if not follow that. What was the criteria for that? What made you say, what made you categorize that as a good sermon? Well, maybe, maybe you thought it was a good sermon because it was given by an interesting and engaging speaker. It was someone who can deliver the sermon in such a way that it, it grabs your attention quickly and, and, and he does well to, to keep your attention. So maybe a good sermon for you is, is one that is given in such an interesting and engaging manner. Maybe you have the criteria of it being a, an exegetical expository sermon. So it's not so much how the sermon delivered as, as, as is what is in the sermon. That is a faithful explaining of the passage verse by verse. Or, or maybe your criteria is you, you, it's a good sermon because you learned something new or interesting. That you walked out of church that morning and you thought, hmm, I, I've never thought of that. Or I've never thought of it in that way. Or maybe very simply for you, a good sermon is one that gets you out of church the quickest that morning. But I want you to think through those criteria. And I want us to look at Peter's sermon, and I want us to apply that criteria to Peter's sermon here. First, was Peter an interesting and engaging speaker? It doesn't say. It doesn't say he was eloquent or, or, or smooth. It doesn't tell us how he was as a speaker. And I will tell you, my gut feeling is, at least at this point, he wasn't that polished of a speaker. This was Peter's first sermon. I think back to my first sermon and I cringe. I've gone back and apologized to that church for having to endure my first sermon. But Peter had been a fisherman for a number of, year, a number of years. Now he didn't have that much experience in public speaking. So, so my gut feeling is that when Peter stood to preach at Pentecost, that Pentecost day, I don't know how good and engaging of a speaker he was. All right. Well, did he preach what we know as the classical exegetical expository sermon? Not really. It was more topical. It was more based upon a topic than it was a text because he's pulling from, from Joel 2 and Psalm 16. Now, he's faithfully preaching from those texts, 
But it's more of a topical sermon that is expository or exegetical. Okay, well then, did Peter share something new and interesting? Well, it's considering he was speaking to Israelites who were there for Pentecost in the courtyard of the temple. These were people who at least were familiar with the Old Testament. So they weren't hearing, in a sense, something new. And hearing Joel 2 and Psalm 16... Now, maybe it was new in the sense of having Jesus applied to it. But in terms terms of it being something novel, not so much. And on a side note, I I, I, want to say this. This sort of criteria where we think a sermon is only good because we learn something novel, that's that's a dangerous criteria. Because if all we do is go, if all we do when we go to church is looking for something that's new and novel, then we are by default saying that the, the, the stories of the Bible, the tried and true stories of the Bible that we were raised on in, in Sunday school and BBS youth group and in, and in church, those tried and true stories of the Bible, they're just not cutting for us anymore. We, we, we've heard them so much, it's just become, eh. We, we've heard the gospel so much, we're like, okay, I, I've heard it before, give me something new. And so we know that that great old, that great old hymn, Tell Me the Old, Old Story, well, we can't sing it based upon that criteria because the old, old story has become boring. We're tired of it. And we need, we need something new and novel. And here's what we learn from Scripture and we learn from the history. If you go to a church and you hear something novel that's never been said before, chances are it's heretical and blasphemous. You may not have remembered hearing it. But if it's something that nobody else has heard in the church before, chances are... It's not from God, it's from Satan. So we need to be very careful with that criteria saying a good sermon is only, is only good when it's something novel. But anyways, back to the original point. We can't say for sure that Peter was an engaging speaker. He preached more of a topical sermon than a classical exegetical expository sermon. He didn't really say anything new or novel. And it certainly wasn't a short sermon. We saw how long it took me to read through it. And it says in verse 40, with many other words, he bore witness and continues to exhort. All right, so take on that criteria. Does that mean that the first sermon of the first church preached by the Apostle Peter wasn't a good sermon? By that criteria, was it not a good sermon? Well, it's hard for us to say that when the end result of the sermon was around 3,000 people were saved. And it was recorded in the Holy Scriptures. So obviously, this is a good sermon. The Holy Spirit used it to convict 3,000 people. That's more people than are in the town of Winsboro. As a sermon that God guided and inspired to be recorded in Holy Scripture, it's a good sermon. So what is it about this sermon that makes it a good sermon. What is it about this sermon that caused some 3,000 people to respond in faith to it? The answer is very simple. It's Jesus. It's simply Jesus. Because what we find here in Peter's sermon, what we find in all all of Scripture, is that the main criteria for what makes a good sermon good or a sermon to be a good sermon, is that it is a sermon that exalts Jesus and glorifies Jesus. 
It's just that simple. When the sermon is about Jesus and his glory, and it calls us to our exaltation of Jesus, then that is a good sermon. Now, it does help to have a pastor who can preach a good sermon in a way that captures and keeps your attention. So thank you for suffering with me for the past 10 years. But since all the Bible is about Jesus, then a good sermon will be from the Bible and it will explain what the Bible says and it will go through the verses as God's given to us. And a good sermon should have us leaving thinking, I hadn't really thought about that with Jesus. I see it in his word. And that makes sense. I hadn't thought about that in a while. And what I just heard has encouraged me to grow in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And hopefully a good sermon won't seem like a long and brutal lecture. When the sermon is about Jesus, and the sermon is about His glory, and it's about our exaltation of Him, then that's a good sermon. And you know what Peter did that Pentecost day? He preached a sermon about Jesus, and the glory of Jesus, and our exalting of Jesus. And some 3,000 people responded to it. But the sermon had to begin in a rather auspicious way, I guess is a good way of putting it. Because what's the first thing Peter has to do? He has to defend the 120 disciples. They had come, excuse me, they had come out of the upper room filled with the Spirit. They have gone out to the temple courtyard where there's obviously more than 3,000 people there. There's thousands of people there. The 120 are going around and they're sharing the gospel and these foreign foreign tongues and languages that they don't know, the the, the 120 don't know, but the the people hear hear the gospel in their language. And what do some people say? They must be drunk. So they're being accused of not only being drunk, but being drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. So I guess the adage is 5 o'clock somewhere was fitting in that culture as well. So Peter, standing in the court, your temple courtyard, side by side with the other 11 apostles, first has to say, no one is drunk. They're filled with the Spirit. Brothers, you are misunderstanding what's happening here. They're not stumbling out of the bar after an all-nighter. We have been filled with the Spirit. Now let me tell you more about this. And so there are some elements of his sermon I I think would do well for us to pay attention to this morning. The Bible you have in your hands, on your lap this morning, is one book. Has one message. Has one author, the Holy Spirit. It's one book that is separated into 66 books and two sections. It was written over over approximately 1,500 years by around 40 different human authors. And it spans all sorts of literary genres. Historical narrative, to wisdom, to poetry, to gospel, to to the epistles, to the apocalyptic. But there's one message. And that one message is Jesus. The Bible is all about Jesus. It always points us to Jesus. The Bible is one story. It's the story of redemption. The story of redemption of God's people by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that story is told on every page of your Bible. 
from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation, the story of Jesus redeeming his people is told on every page. So it doesn't matter where you turn to in your Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, through, through the prophets, through the wisdom, into the New Testament. It doesn't matter where you turn to in your Bible. There you will always find Jesus. Sometimes it's in types and figures. Sometimes in shadows. Sometimes it's in person. But Jesus is always there. He's there in Genesis 1. How do we know he's there in Genesis 1? Because Colossians 3 tells us. It was Jesus who was present at, at creation. All things were created through him and for him and to his glory. And then we turn a page over and we come to Genesis 3 and there's the fall of man. And what does, she, what does God promise? Seed of a woman. Who's that seed of a woman? It's Jesus. And there's always going to be a remnant of people to be saved. Who would save those people? Who did Noah's Ark look forward to? Who did Exodus look forward to? It always looked forward to Jesus. Throughout every page of the Bible is the story of the redemption of God's people in and through Jesus Christ. And that story is reflected in Peter's sermon. From beginning to end, it's a sermon all about Jesus. Was it an eloquent, uh, interesting, well-preached sermon? We don't know. It was, it was more topical. It, it wasn't anything novel to it. It, it was longer. But it's a good sermon because at the center of it is Jesus. And at every point, Peter keeps on pointing to Jesus. Here's Jesus. Go to Jesus this way. No Jesus this way. Go to Jesus in this direction. So there's this obvious conviction about Jesus that that's evident from the very beginning of Peter's sermon. Because the first theological point he addresses, as we've said, is that the 120 disciples are filled with the Spirit and not wine. And he says, this was prophesied by the prophet Joel. He quotes from the Greek translation, the Old Testament text of Joel 2, 20-32, and that's about the promise of the Spirit for God's people. Okay, so what's that have to do with Jesus? It has to do with this. Before Pentecost, there's what? The ascension of Jesus. And we've already said, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? For a nice heavenly vacation? Tired of earth? Ready to go find somewhere else to do? Somewhere else to, 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 somewhere else to go? No. Jesus ascended into heaven so he could send forth the Spirit. John 16, 7 tells us. Jesus talking to his disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus ascends to the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to his people. And send the Holy Spirit so that the church will be birthed. That's why scripture at times will refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. And, and sometimes we refer to the book of Acts not so much as Acts of the Apostles, but Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Because the Spirit was sent by Jesus to minister to us uh, the, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So here is Peter defending the, the, the 120, talking about the prophecy of Joel and the giving of the Holy Spirit. So in that, 
He's pointing back to Jesus at the ascension and now in heaven because Jesus is the giver and sender of the Holy Spirit. If you want to think of an equation, think of it this way. The Father sends forth the Son. The Son ascends into the heaven so that the Father and Son can now send the Holy Spirit. Two or One sent the two for the two to ascend so that one and two can now send the third person, the Trinity. If that makes sense to you. But the Holy that the 120 have the Spirit because their Jesus is an ascended Jesus who sent his Spirit to his people so he could share the gospel. So even in his introduction, his defense is the shadow of Jesus. Why are they filled with the Holy Spirit? Because their Jesus ascended to heaven to send to them his Spirit so they could tell others about Jesus. Then he addresses the group, or addressing this group, this group he refers to as the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem and men of Israel. Peter goes into like a Jesus 101 sort of sermon. I encourage you later on today to take some time to, to read through this sermon so you can better see and understand how deep and thorough Peter is in talking about Jesus. It's interesting to me to note that he is standing in the temple courtyard. Thousands of people are there. And he's going to share the gospel, but he does so in a very deep and thorough way. This isn't about knowledge uh, of Jesus that's an inch deep and a mile wide. This isn't a sharing of the gospel so that the, the, the people get warm and fuzzy and feel better about themselves. No, th- th- this is, this is a, a mind knowledge that's meant to lead to a conviction of heart. A mind for truth that leads to a heart for God. Because listen again to how Peter begins this Jesus one-on-one section. Jesus of Nazareth. Right, this backwoods town, Nazareth. This Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified. You killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosened the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. We had a time machine and we were, we were able to go back to this day and stand there in the crowd and listen to Peter preach this and say these words. We would, probably, we would probably look at each other and go, ooh, did he really say that? Did he really identify Jesus first as from being from Nazareth? And then saying, essentially, you people should have known. Because God did all these things in your midst. Not only did you not know, you killed him. You killed him. It's a wild statement. In these two sentences, Peter delves into the divinity of Jesus. He begins to open the book on the Trinity. He's talking about the death and resurrection of Jesus. There's a lot going on in these two sentences. But it keeps going. He goes from Joel 2 to then Psalm 16. And he talks about the great King David, their, their favoritist king of all time. And he says the great King David was looking forward to Jesus. Who is a better king than David? And then along the way, he says, oh yeah, here's some more Trinity doctrine for you. 
So here is Peter as an evangelist, an evangelist standing in the middle of a crowd of people in the temple courtyard, and he takes them head first into the deep end of the theology of Jesus. And he preaches a very convicted sermon on this Jesus. He is convicted as Jesus is the divine Son of God. He is Lord. He is Savior of His people. But I think what we really see here, this is a Jesus who Peter knows and loves because he knows how much Jesus first knew him and loved him. And in that knowledge and love, he is convicted about everything he has preached about Jesus that day. Again, if we were able to take a time machine, we're able to be sitting there, we, we would look around and we would say, there is no doubt Peter believes everything he just preached about Jesus. This was a sermon convicted on Jesus, preached by a man who's been convicted by Jesus. And it was preached in such a way that there was this obvious conviction about their need for salvation. Think again these words. This Jesus delivered up uh, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It may be that as, as Peter <clears throat> stood at Temple Courtyard that day, he looked out in the crowd and he saw familiar faces. Those who were intimately involved with the crucifixion of Jesus. What we do know, we on shadow doubt what Peter did see that day were a group of unrepentant sinners whose sins had put Jesus on the cross. We can imagine that as he preached these words, he pointed at them. And even if he didn't, his words very much pointed to them. None of them left. They didn't throw stones at them or rotten fruit. It says... It cut them. It cut them to their heart. That's a graphic verb. In our modern parlance, they say, well, that person was touched. That person was, was touched by the message. There was no touch in here. This is spiritual open heart surgery. They were ripped open. Their sinfulness, their responsibility was made plain and clear to them. And so all they can do is they can look at Peter and the other eleven and they say, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter, your words have ripped open our chests and our spiritual hearts are laid bare. What shall we do now? There's a story told of George Whitfield, the great British evangelist who, who preached some here in America. But he goes to a mining town in England. And people hear he's coming, so he goes out to a field to preach, and they estimate some 10,000 people show up in his field to hear George Whitfield preach. And a majority of them were miners. And they come straight out of the coal mines. So you, you, you can imagine these 10,000 people, and, and thousands of them, these men, with their faces uh, coated black with coal dust. And George Whitfield, with that great booming voice where all 10,000 people in the field could hear him begins to tell them about their sin. They are sinners and they deserve hell. But here is Jesus. And here's how much he loves you. And here's how he will forgive you of your sins if you will just turn to him. 
And witnesses said that as Whitfield preached this sermon about sin and Jesus, you began to hear weeping. You looked around. It wasn't so much the women and the children as it was the men. These hardened laborers of men coming straight out of the coal mine. And they said you knew they were weeping because you heard it. But then you looked at your faces and you saw these trails of white start making their way down from their eyes, down past their cheeks, down to their chins. As these tears of sorrow and of repentance and the joy of Christ washed that black coal dust off of their faces as they were cut to the heart and they heard the gospel, their their faces being washed with these trails of tears. Quite an appropriate picture of salvation, isn't it? And that's what's happening here at Pentecost. These religious people in the temple courtyard hear Peter's sermon. They hear that they are the ones responsible for killing Jesus. It's by their hands that he died and that he will love them and forgive them. So they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter says to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Peter is very direct. The sermon is very direct. The response is very direct. Have faith in Jesus. Have faith so you can repent of your sins and take on the sign of baptism. And this promise of salvation is for you and for your families. Peter doesn't leave them wondering about what to do. There's an urgency there. He says, this is what you do. He doesn't tell them to go home and make sure this is what you want to do. He doesn't say, go talk about others about this. He says, no, your heart is exposed. Repent and be baptized. He's able to discern that the Holy Spirit is at work in these people. And there is an urgency to this because there is no guarantee of tomorrow. 3,000 people listened. Maybe with tears. But they listened. They repented. And they were baptized. And they went home. And they gathered their families together. And they gathered their neighbors. And they said, listen to this wonderful good news. 3,000 listened and responded. Because it was a good sermon. It's been said that one of our greatest enemies is time. Time is one of our greatest enemies. And it's my opinion that when it comes to our perception of the gospel, I think that's very true. We find people in the church, maybe even here this morning, who think, I have plenty of time to respond to God's call of faith and repentance. Let me have a good time. How many times do we hear that in the church and covenant families? Youth are going to be youth. Let them have a good time. They're going to drink. They're going to have sex. They're going to do drugs. Let them have a good time. They have plenty of time. Let them go to college and do the same thing. Let them go into early adulthood. Let them sow their wild oats. And then they will settle down and follow Jesus. Maybe it's how we treated ourselves. Maybe it's how we're still treating ourselves. 
May it's how we think of our children, our grandchildren, of others. Yet there is no guarantee of tomorrow. There is no guarantee we will make it home alive from church. Not to be morbid, but it's true. Time may be our greatest enemy. So this morning, what is keeping you from responding in faith and repentance? True faith and complete repentance. What is keeping you from embracing it? What is keeping you from giving all of your heart and your mind to Jesus Christ? What is better, what is a better option to you than loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself? And what is keeping you from sharing it with your loved ones? What is keeping you from going home and sharing with them this message that Peter shares here? Because understand this, Peter, this fisherman turned, turned disciple, was willing to stand in the courtyard of temple and issue this call to a crowd, some of whom may have been involved in death as Jesus, yet Peter loved them enough to tell them, repent and be baptized. Trust in Jesus and know him in faith. He could look at the very ones who put his Jesus on the cross. He didn't tell them to go where, he, where we think they ought to go. Repent and be baptized. So this morning I want to end this sermon as the good sermon that Peter preaches. May each of us hear this call to turn to Jesus in faith and repentance so we may love ourselves and love others enough to call them to this faith and repentance while there is still time. Let's pray.